Well, we've prayed, we've sang, now we get to read and hear Scripture. This is another aspect of our worship, so I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. And those of you who are super observant will wonder, well, what happened to verse 37? It goes from 36 to 38. Where's 37? And if you're super, super observant, you'll know that there's a footnote that gives us Acts chapter 8, 37. Apparently, there are many manuscripts that the Bible translators refer to when they are making their various translations. And the people that did the NIV decided that the best manuscripts do not have verse 37, so they included it as a footnote. And other translators go ahead and include it in the body of the scripture, but they'll probably note that there's some other manuscripts that don't have it. So anyway, just a little background for you. If you really want to read verse 37, it's there. And it really doesn't make any difference regarding what we believe but it's there, all right? So anyway, let's start out at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Dean. 
We've had some uh, tragic things happen in our country in recent years and just in recent weeks, and I'm sure all of you have heard of the church shooting that took place in Texas recently. As a part of that whole scenario, there were two men who took action when they became aware of what was happening. One actually exchanged gunfire with the shooter, and the other drove a pickup truck in which these two men chased the attacker in an effort to keep him from getting away and causing harm to others. And because of these actions, these two men have been credited with saving lives. And, you know, you've, maybe some of you have been a part of um, a situation where you actually had a hand or were responsible in some way in, in helping save someone's life. You know, I think of stories of someone being per, pulled from a burning building, or we know if back at 9-11, you know, how people dug through the rubble and pulled people out of that rubble who were still living. And, and we all know stories of someone that was maybe saved from drowning. And so... There are these life-saving efforts that have gone on. And, and I, think for a moment how it must feel to know that you've been a part, had a hand in some way of saving a life. I can't think of anything that would be more gratifying. And I think that what we're, we've read today, what, what Dean read for us, is a story of life-saving from a little different perspective than maybe these other examples I've given you. And let me share some scripture with you this morning, and then I'll try to tie these together before we actually get into the text that Dean read. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 and 4 and 5 says this, As for you, Paul speaking to the Ephesians who are now followers of Christ, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions It is by grace you have been saved. Life-saving. Thank you. (laughs) 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Here's the critical part. Who wants all people to be saved. Life-saving. And to come to a knowledge of the truth. And then these verses that many of us are very familiar with. John 3, 14-16. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Life-saving. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. But the good news is, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear the life-saving theme in all of those verses? God wants to save lives. And guess what? We can have a part in that. We can be a, have a hand in saving lives. So what is our responsibility in this life-saving effort? Well, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we find this written, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's our responsibility. That's our part in this. We are to be witnesses. We're to be seed scatterers. Right? We're to be seed scatterers. That's what, that, that in essence is what witnessing is. It's scattering the seeds of the gospel. We are scattering seed, the good news about Jesus who saved us. You remember this, the story of the sower and the seed, don't you? Some seed fell on the path and was, you know, uh, the birds came and ate it up or it was trampled on. Some fell on rocky ground and, 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 and did not have good roots because it couldn't go down into that rocky soil and so it, it died out when the heat came on. Some fell on ground that was full of weeds that grew up and choked it out. But guess what? Some fell on good soil. And it took root and it grew up and it produced a harvest. And you know what? It doesn't say that the sower just kind of looked for good ground. It says he just scattered seed. That's our job. We're seed scatterers. And in that process, we can have a hand in saving lives. See, we need to understand that all this, not all the seed that was scattered produced a positive result. We won't always get a positive result when we scatter seed. But that's okay. Because our job is to scatter seed and to leave the results to God. Do you believe that? It's our job to scatter seed and leave the results to God. Hey, not everyone that Jesus or Peter or Paul witnessed to responded in a positive way. Right? But it didn't stop them from scattering seed. So we are to be witnesses, seed scatters, and doing so, and in doing so, we may have a part in saving lives. Chuck Swindoll writes this about what he calls the most popular approach to witnessing. He titles it the mute approach. I'm just a silent witness for God. The best you can say, he says, about this method is that no one ever gets offended. That's for sure. The Secret Service saint who settles for this self-centered approach 
could be tagged a Clairol Christian. You remember those Clairol ads? Only your hairdresser knows for sure. (laughs) Only God knows for sure. Somewhere along the line, this person has swallowed one of Satan's tastiest tidbits. Just live a good Christian life. Others will ask you about Christ if they're really interested, so relax. He says, frankly, I can count on one hand and have fingers left over of the number of people who have suddenly come to me and asked how they might know Jesus Christ as Savior. Faith. Please remember, faith comes from hearing. And he goes on to say, certainly the mute approach is not all wrong. It is vitally important to live a good Christian life before others. And I talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We can ruin our witness by the way we live before others, can't we? So we know that living a Christian life, the right kind of life, is important. Our walk and our talk have to line up. But there will come a time when you will need to speak of your faith as well. You will need to speak of it. The scripture that, that he just makes reference to in Romans 10:17, faith comes by hearing. The scripture I made reference to is true. Faith does come by hearing. If others are to believe in Jesus, they must not only see him in your life, They must hear about how to enter into relationship with him as well. At some point in time, your witnessing will require you to say something about your faith in Jesus. So we're going to look this morning at an example from the book of Acts, an example of someone who very effectively witnessed to someone else. And that's the story of Philip and the Ethiopian. And we, we, there's some lessons that we can learn from this story. First of all, the first lesson we can learn is this. God places incredible importance on one person. One person. How many of you recognize that God placed a critical someone in your path to help bring you into a saving relationship with Jesus? Maybe it was more than one someone, but the point is that somewhere along the line, in addition to whatever you saw in, the li- in that life or those lives, something was said to you about Jesus and what he can do in a person's life. How many of us understand that we must be ready to be that critical someone in another person's life who will lead them to Jesus? We may be that critical person. No matter how great a Christian life you live before someone else, there's going to be a point where you will be asked or the opportunity will come for you to share your faith in Jesus Christ. You will need to be ready to say something. So, let's look at seven principles of the Philip approach to witnessing. Now, some background on this man that Philip has been called to witness to. He was the secretary of the treasury for the dynasty of Candace. And I think we tend to look at Candace as this queen's name. That probably wasn't the case. It's not so much a proper name as a title, which all the queens of Ethiopia during that 
period in history bore. In fact, I was reading about this in another version of the Bible, and it didn't say Candace. It said Candake, K-A-N-D-A-K-E. Did I spell it Candake? Yeah. Candake. So it was actually a title, not necessarily that person's name. And so this eunuch served in the court of Candace, or Candake. And he'd come to Jerusalem to worship. And William Barclay says this about that, the idea of this eunuch coming to Jerusalem to worship. In those days, the world was full of people who were weary of the many gods and loose morals of the nation. Boy, that sounds familiar. They came to Judaism and there found the one God and the austere moral standards which gave life meaning. If they accepted Judaism and were circumcised, they were called proselytes. If they did not go to that length but continued to attend the Jewish synagogues and to read the Jewish scriptures, they were called God-fearers. This Ethiopian must have been one of these searchers who came to rest in Judaism either as a proselyte or a God-fearer. And so that's why he'd left Ethiopia and come to Jerusalem. So, what's Philip do here? Well, first of all, we need to see that Philip was available. Philip was available. If you, if you read an earlier portion from this chapter, we find in verses 4 through 8 that it says this, Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Man, I, I'd love it if my ministry is firing on all cylinders like that, you know? So what we read here is Philip, well, I mean, he had it going on in Samaria. He was, he was in the thick of it and great things were happening. But because he was willing to be used in any way God desired, he was available. He was willing to be used in any way God desired. And you're not truly available unless you're willing to be used in any way God desires. And you know, we, I remember, I think it was my brother sent me one, uh, one of these, you know, things that we get on the internet all the time. Hey, you need to read this. And pass it on. And I never do that. I read them, but then I hit the delete button. <clears throat> because, you know, 14 people aren't going to die if I don't pass it on. I, I don't believe that stuff. But, um, Many of us, uh, this thing he sent me talked about how the, the, the Satan use a tool, uh, uses the tool of busyness in our lives to distract us from that which is the most important. And so that's what happens. We, we get busy with important things. And we get so busy that we're not available. And it may be work or family or things around the house or the kitchen remodel or whatever the current project is or, you know, your kids' activities or your recreations or you name it. 
There's a thousand things that could be on that list. <clears throat> and sometimes these things are just a good excuse because we're not willing to be available. It's kind of scary. Other times it's merely a priority problem. This thing that I am doing is more important than when, more important than what God is asking me to do. And Philip could have said that. I mean, look what he was doing in Samaria. That was all really great stuff. He was preaching. People were coming to Jesus. He was casting out demons. He was healing people. Come on, God. Do you see what I'm doing here? And I have to, time to run off to somewhere. And But he was available. And when God wanted him to go, he said, yes, I will. So he went. And the second thing we need to see here then is that Philip was spirit-led. And that's critical. It's essential. Nothing great happened in the New Testament unless it was spirit-led. And by the way, just because it is spirit-led doesn't mean that it will be easy or less fearful or intimidating and that, or that you'll necessarily be inspired in some kind of divine way when you obey God. Sometimes, listen, God, God lives with us in the dailiness of life. And when God calls us to do something, it may not always be this great inspiration and incredible boldness. And, you know, people just fall on their knees and beg God for forgiveness. And we can put a not, another notch on our salvation gun. People sense, excuse me, Philip sensed that God was clearly opening the door here. The Spirit was leading him. So no matter what his feelings were at that point, he did what God asked him to do. You know why he did that? Because God has an authentic interest in people. And his people are supposed to have an authentic interest in people. We have to care about people. And God had someone he was concerned about, and he wanted Philip to go there and minister to this person. That's a spirit thing. It's God's heart for the lost in us. That's what it is. And I, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that the spirit was at work in the Ethiopian's life ahead of Philip. Do you think God was working in the Ethiopian at this point? He was getting him ready for this encounter. I mean, the guy's reading scripture, scripture when Philip comes up alongside of him. Man, what a great setup. What a great opening. You know what? If you're led by the Spirit to witness to someone, then you can be assured that the Spirit has been at work in that person's life and circumstances ahead of you. If God calls you to go to someone with your testimony as a witness, you can be assured that God has been at work in that person's life ahead of you. He's been preparing them for this. Now, we know that sometimes it takes more than one try. Hey, some of us were tough cases, right? Took more than one try. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're saying no. I'm going to stand back so the lightning doesn't hit me either. 
Yeah, we need to understand that when God leads us to someone, he's been working in their lives already, but we might only be one step in the process to getting them to Jesus. And that's okay. Remember where Paul talked about watering? Okay. Planting seed, watering, and the harvest. We don't know what stage we might be involved in a person's life. I love it when I'm at the harvest stage. That is a great thing to be involved in. But listen, if God wants me to plant seeds or to water or to till the soil a little bit, I'm willing to do that. We may be one step in the process, but it's a spirit-led thing. God guides us. He leads us to people. He opens the doors for us. The third thing we need to see here is that Philip was obedient. If you're going to make yourself available, then you better be obedient when the time comes. And probably all of us can grieve over opportunities that we've missed. Great intentions mean nothing unless we're willing to obey God when he says go or do. So much of what God does hinges on our obedience. And you know, it's hard to know what our failure to obey might mean in the life of that person that God is calling us to go to. We really, we can't answer that question, but you wonder sometimes if what the outplay of our failure to obey and go to someone might mean in their lives. So we have to be obedient, just like Philip was. Man, he was in the thick of it. Great things were happening, but God said go, and he said, yes, I will. The fourth thing we need to understand is that Philip waited for an opportune moment. Listen, when the Holy Spirit is at work, there will be an opportune moment. And because that's true, generally, anyway, people you are trying to witness to will open the door for you. You don't have to knock it down. You see what I'm saying? Somewhere along the line, they will open the door for you. You don't have to force it open. In fact, forcing is sometimes not a very good idea. I mean, you're going to hear about Jesus whether you like it or not. Oh, no, you're not leaving. Ever tried to give your pet? We do. We tried to give our dog a pill. Yeah, it's a frustrating experience. You know what you have to do? You have to make the pill more appealing. Julie's found out that if she puts ice cream on them, down the hatch. And, and we can, there's a, there are appealing ways for us to approach people, aren't there? There really are. And so... Philip, Philip had waited for this opportune moment, and the opportune moment was when he heard the Ethiopian reading from the Scriptures. Which takes us to our next point, and that's this. Philip was tactful. He was tactful. 1 Peter 3.15, But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer for the, to everyone for the hope that is within you. And do this with gentleness and respect. So Philip was tactful. He didn't come up to this guy and say, Listen, pal, you've got it all wrong. Let me straighten you out. You don't, you don't want to get sucked back into this Judaism thing. So 
he was tactful in, in, in the way he approached this guy. And, you know, he, so he said, do you understand what you're reading? And, and, and the Ethiopian eunuch said, well, unless someone explains it to me. And that word explain in the Greek is a technical word for authoritative teaching or interpretation. That's what he was asking for. Explain this to me. Give me an authoritative explanation of what, what this is talking about. Whoa! Open door. And listen, I, I think sometimes one of our fears is that when we get into these kind of conversations with people, when God opens the door for us to witness to them, then we kind of get this... Because, <laughs> you know, oh, what are those verses I memorized when I was in kindergarten class and and remember or the Roman road to salvation or the four spiritual laws and you know I'm not saying that those things can't be effective but listen if the Holy Spirit is working in your life excuse me their life and your life God's going to help you God's going to help you to know what to say and I would not by the way discount the memorization of scripture um, I really wonder if God's going to bring to your mind scriptures that you don't know. Okay? So there is some, there's no doubt about the fact that we, it's good for us to do some preparation work. But we, need, we don't need to go into these situations with fear and trepidation. Oh, oh God, help me. What am I going to... God will help you. God will help you. I'll tell you, I love those experiences that I, I've, I've had like that. I have to tell you about one. It was one of the most gratifying things for me. Uh, we had a gentleman in our church uh, when we passed in Eastern Oregon that worked at, at the railroad. He was a manager out there, and it was a, it's a, was a big rail yard. Uh, they call it Hinkle, and they've got it. You know, got the hump yard, and they make uh, they build trains, and they've got the roundhouse and the whole bit, and they work on the locomotive. It's a big deal, and. A lot of people work there, and this gentleman was a manager out there, and he had a man who, that worked for him, lived uh, about a half hour, 40 minutes from us across the river up in Tri-Cities in Washington. His wife was dying of cancer, and she was, she was scared. She was scared. She was afraid to die. So they said, could you come talk to her? And I said, I'd be glad to do that. And I went up there, and I told her about Jesus, and that he loved her, and that she could have her sins forgiven, and she accepted Christ as her Savior. And you could see it in this woman's face. The fear was gone. She died shortly after that. But she wasn't afraid. We do not know, folks, we do not know. One person. One person. And, you know, we don't have to bowl them over. It's not slapping them in the face. We need to be tactful about it. God will open the doors and He will give us what we need to say to that person in that circumstance because everybody's different. Amen? The next thing, Philip was specific. Philip didn't talk about religion. He didn't talk about lifestyle. He didn't talk about which version of the Bible is right. 
He didn't talk about who was right and who was wrong. He talked about Jesus. We can work on some of those other issues later. He talked about Jesus. You need to start with Jesus and where people are in their understanding of who Jesus is and their relationship with him. Not where they should be. We'll get to that. We start with Jesus. That's, it's not about the Church of the Nazarene. You know, I'd love to see people who are saved through our ministry. I'd like to see our pews filling up with people like that. But it's not about the Church of the Nazarene. It's about Jesus. They need Jesus. Now, I believe they also need a church body at some point. But we need to start with their greatest need, and it's the need for Jesus. And Philip was specific about that. And of course, you know, he had a nice setup situation because that passage in Isaiah is talking all about Jesus. So we need to be specific. And then we see that in this situation that the eunuch believed. Like, wow, that's, that's what that is. And, and Philip was able to say, yeah, He's come, and he died, and he rose again. And the, he, God was at work in this man's life, and he, he believed it. So what happens when, when we have the privilege of being at that stage in somebody's life where, where, where they take that step of faith and belief? We run off to the next person. Now, there was fault, there's follow-up that's important. Too often we forget that aspect of witnessing. Philip didn't have the opportunity to do much follow-up. God just kind of, whoop, moved him out of there. But he did took advantage, take advantage of the time he had. He took the Ethiopian to the next step. In this case, it was baptism. While he had time with this man, he took him to the next step. And we need to understand the importance of discipling people who put their faith in Christ. You know, there have been a lot of great evangelism plans out there over the years, but not all of them included the follow-up aspect. We need to stay as close to those people as possible. We need to help them with their questions and with their doubts. We need to help them in that process of growth that's so essential in a follower of Jesus' life. You know, there's a joke I remember hearing a number of years ago. It's probably around election time. It was the difference. It was a joke about how a Republican and a Democrat would save a man who was drowning 100 feet from shore. And it was said that the Republican would throw 50 feet of rope and then tell him to swim to it. The Democrat would throw 200 feet of rope and run off to help the next person. Neither approach works well when we're talking about follow-up with a new believer. We have to throw them that life-saving line. And then we need to make sure that we are there to pull them to shore and see that their feet are on solid ground. Get it? It's not just about, you know, I can finally put one in the wind column. We can't leave them on their own. It'll be like that seed that was dropped on the pathway or the rocky ground or where there were weeds growing up. 
we've got to make sure that we help them in that growth process. It's the follow-up that's important. So we need to be available. We need to be spirit-led. We need to be obedient. We need to take advantage of the opportune moments. We need to be tactful. We need to be specific. And we need to follow up. And I want you to see, I've got a video clip that I want you to see as we close this morning. You have a spiritual temperature. Whether you know it or not, your heart burns with a passion to share the love of Jesus with others. And sometimes that passion runs cold. What I say on my little scale I use of 1 to 10 is, boy, that, that passion is cold. I'm not praying for people, spending time with them, engaging with people who don't yet know Jesus. And, and I don't think much about it. Or maybe you're at a 10. Boy, you pray about it every day. You're spending time with people. You're engaging with them. You're looking for ways to share your story of faith and the story of Jesus in a natural, organic way. The truth is most of us live somewhere between these two. On any given day, when I share this simple tool with people, they can say, you know, I'm at about a four right now, or I'm at a seven. And the one degree rule, the simple idea is this. Whatever your temperature is today, turn the dial, turn that knob up, let those flames grow higher, and, and, and say, God, increase my temperature and my heart and my love for those who are far from you. One more degree. Well, you say, well, how do I do that? How do I go about raising that temperature? I, there's lots of ways, but I always suggest three simple things. The first is prayer. Begin to pray, God, raise my temperature. God, let me love people who you love that are far from you. God, change my heart. But also pray, Lord, change their heart. Open the hearts of others. Let my life intersect with them and engage with them and soften their hearts toward Jesus Christ. The second thing that can raise your temperature is what I call proximity. Proximity is just spending time being near people who are far from God. And your presence will bring the love and the grace of Jesus. And just by being with them, you're going to want them to know Jesus. So spend time in proximity with people. And then testimonies. Tell stories and listen to stories of changed lives. Of your life of faith. Of other people's lives of faith. Of those who don't yet know Jesus, but the little steps they're taking forward. Wherever you are on the scale, say to God, God, raise my temperature by one more degree. So you're a four? God, bring me to a five. You're a seven? Lord, take me to an eight. Maybe you say, I'm at a ten. I'm burning hot. I'm passionate. I'm engaging with people. And you're at a ten. Is that all I can go? Make your scale an eleven. And turn that knob and raise the spiritual temperature of your heart and your life. It's a good prayer to pray, folks. Lord God, raise my spiritual temperature. Pray with me. Father, we come to you today as we have looked at this story of Philip and the Ethiopian, a witnessing opportunity that Philip did not miss because he was obedient to you and he did all the right things in dealing with this man whom you had prepared for this encounter. And we need to remember that. That when you call us to go to someone and share our testimony, you have prepared them for that encounter. Now, we also need to understand that we may only be one step in a process. But the Lord God, every person, one person is important to you. And that we, if we can have a, a, a part in moving them closer to Jesus, then we need to be willing to do that. To be, to have a, a part, to have a hand in saving a life. And Father, as we have closed with this simple illustration today, you know where we are at. You know what our spiritual temperature is. You know, you know how firm we are or are not to share Jesus with others. And whether we're a one or a five or a ten, 
May our prayer today be that, Lord God, you would work in our hearts and in our lives to raise our temperature by one degree. And, Lord God, when you've raised it by one degree, then to pray again that you'll raise it by one more degree and one more degree and one more degree. And that, Father, we will be faithful in your call on our lives to be witnesses in a lost, broken, and hurting world. Father, I pray that this morning we will take each of us a step of obedience and say, when you tap me on the shoulder, when you open the door, when you call me to go or to do, Lord, I will. And maybe that will require raising the temperature by a degree or more. But Lord, yes, I will. And so I just want to take a moment as our heads are bowed this morning for us to be honest with God in that respect to say, you know, my spiritual temperature is pretty low. I know it needs to be raised. Would you do that in my life? And then... Father, I commit, when you open a door, when you call me to go or to do, I will. I'll be available. I'm not going to let the excuses of my own busyness delay me or distract me or cause me to say, no, what I'm doing is more important than what you have for me. I'm not going to let that happen anymore. And Father, that I will pray for people who are lost. And I will be in proximity to people who are lost. And I will be willing to share my testimony of what Jesus has done in me. Just in your own lives now, just take a moment. Maybe you need to ask God for forgiveness because you haven't been faithful in those areas. Maybe you need to ask Him to raise the temperature one degree or to be obedient in some way or to be available. But just take these moments to commit to God as someone who's willing to be a lifesaver. Father God, as we close today, we remember that one of the very primary reasons the Church of Jesus Christ exists is to reach reach out into our world, throw out a lifeline, be lifesavers, share Jesus. Share a testimony. And, Lord God, I I know that we live in an environment that isn't necessarily friendly to the church or the things of God or 
to what we believe about Jesus and what He can do in people's lives, but I believe this. When you call us to go to someone, you've already been at work in their lives. And it may not be just one try. We may be a step in the process. But, oh God, there's not a more important process in the world that we could be involved in than life-saving. As we prayed this morning, you have heard how we prayed. You have heard our prayers for forgiveness. You've heard our prayers that you would raise our spiritual temperature, that, Lord God, you've heard our prayers of commitment to you today to be seed scatterers, knowing that in doing that, we can be lifesavers as well. And may this not be just a Sunday morning, I was touched by the message, or I heard God speak to me, and we leave it in the pew somehow, but... Father, now we live it out as your Holy Spirit works in us because we want to be a church that is making an internal difference in the world where we live. Seeing people put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. We ask now, Father, that you'd encourage our hearts, strengthen our hearts, give us the boldness that we need to be the witnesses you've called us to be in our neighborhoods, where we work, in our families, wherever you open doors of opportunity for us. And we give you praise and honor and glory and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.